0: I don't see the together mode. I don't either. Maybe it is a sign. There we go. Ah. Where are you,
1: Connor? I don't know. Where, where are you? Where, where are you at this party, Connor? Does it show together mode for you? It's showing
0: you guys at this party, and then it's showing me in a separate little window. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm being excluded or something. <laughs>
2: Welcome, Secret Movie clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 70. As Daniel Ott was telling me, it's amazing that we've gotten to 70. I want to thank everybody here. That's how quickly 70 podcasts happen. And actually, technically, it's 77 when you factor in the radio hours we did and some of the other things we did. Today's podcast is going to be Cinema as Transformative Art. By which we mean when a movie suddenly becomes something other than maybe it was intended to be in its reincarnated post lives. A great example would be what we just did last week. We showed an Italian Jaws ripoff called El Ultimo Squalo, which is the Last Shark, and it was released here in the U.S. as Great White. But we brought in the Resistance, and they killed it. They're a comedy improv troupe, and we turned down the sound because it was in Italian anyway, and they just redid voices for it. So you got a third. Experience experience in a way, not the experience of the movie in Italian, not the experience of the movie redubbed as sort of a Jaws ripoff in English, but you got this movie that was clearly a Jaws ripoff with a comedy troupe creating a whole new narrative and meta-narrative and an audience enjoying both, and that's how we're defining cinema as transformative art. But there's way other more ways that that can happen. Steven Soderbergh does fan edits of movies, like so he can understand the movie better. Sometimes avant-garde filmmakers will take imagery and repurpose it or re do it, like when Todd Haynes redid the Carpenter's story with Barbie dolls. There's all this way that this can happen, and we'll get into it in a moment, but who is with us today?
0: Hey, it's Daniel. Hi, it's me, Conor Lee Cruz, the People's Champion.
2: Hello, America. Again, I'm on a computer. This is here <laughs> for me. And uh, I'm Craig, founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. I want to just take a moment, Secret Movie Club team. Thank you, guys. 70 podcasts. It's all downhill from here. No, F that. <laughs> announcements at the head of this week. Uh, We wrap up August with a bang, not with a whimper. On Friday, it's almost sold out. So by the time you hear this, it may be told. In fact, I'm almost positive it'll be sold out. We're doing uh, The Raid and The Raid 2, two of the greatest martial arts movies of recent times, both shot in Indonesia on 35 millimeter. And it's one of those great sequels where the sequel picks up five seconds after the uh, first movie ends, which is really dope. But they're totally different movies because the first movie is sort of a minute for minute in a building, and the second movie goes Godfather epic and takes place across a year or something. But uh, they're both great movies. Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater, we are doing a Chaplin triple. We're doing The Kid, Gold Rush, City Lights on 35 millimeter. The Gold Rush is in my top 35. I'm obsessed with that film. But I love The Kid and City Lights, too. City Lights is one of the greatest endings of all time. And then that night, our rescheduled Jim Jarmish double Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law, the two movies he made in black and white in the mid 80s. And I do have to say, I, I think my favorite Jarmish may be Down by Law, along with. I'm a huge fan of Dead Man, and I'm a huge fan of Patterson. But that's me. And I still have to see Only Lovers Left Alive, Daniel. That's pretty awesome. Too, that's right? fantastic. Yeah. There are a few I have to see that I haven't seen. So I probably shouldn't say my favorites till I've seen them all. Favorite at I, present. Favorite at present. And then Secret Movie Clubbers, we have announced and are in the process of announcing pretty much all of our September. Check it out. We just announced a Dark Spielberg double at the million dollar, which is Minority Report and War of the Worlds. We're doing 2046 on 35 Wong Kar That is on the way to selling out. We just announced Saving. Private Ryan and Thin Red Line on 35. We announced David Fincher on 35 in September. It's crazy. It's just crazy in the middle of all this Michigas, We want you to come. People are coming and uh, watching these movies. Thank you. That's our schedule. And then on top of that, we are going to be bringing in filmmakers into the studio for a short film festival that's done. We've picked the films. That should be coming to you in October, as well as some new Cinema 35 episodes and a lot more exciting stuff. Go to secretmovieclub.com. Go to Eventbrite Secret Movie Club. Write us a community at secretmovieclub.com about all this. All right cinema as transformative art the themes will never end. Every time you think the well goes dry, there's something different. So last week we showed El Ultimo Squalo with The Resistance and check them out at Resistance Comedy or at The Resistance Comedy. They're an amazing LA comedy improv troupe. And I think they're actually going to come in when things mellow out a little bit more and do their live show as well, where you mentioned genres and movies and they just do on the fly. One hour, they make up a movie in person. And then we're going to show another movie. We're going to do like a double bill where the first part of it is that- doing a live movie for an hour, and then they're going to improv a movie like they did The Ultimate Squallow. But the point of what we're trying to say is when a movie gets made that's just the beginning of its life. That's not the end of its life. Uh, Movies can be rediscovered or embraced like The Big Lebowski, which was sort of tepidly received in 1997, but since has come to be in the views of many, including this programmer, the Coen Brothers' greatest movie. There's Lebowski Fests, which people just get together in costume and bowl and watch the movie. So that would be cinema's transformative art. You know, many filmmakers like avant-garde filmmakers, Andy Warhol, Bruce Conner, they have taken movies and and then just recut them drawn on them or done things with war footage stan brackage has done that
0: i know someone who you could add to that pantheon would that be connor lloyd cruz it would be i've done that a few times i want to do this for the club we've talked about this when you're walking in as like a projecting on the wall i love to do this at parties but i uh will get a bunch of different movies and just put them in after effects and put effects on them so the movies will play through the other ones like chroma keying and just keying out the movies in different ways and just kind of seeing what happens and it's always like an interesting little experiment especially because you'll sometimes watch the movies and they'll line up what's the one you always talk about my favorite one which i called the fast and the furious neo tokyo story it was the fast and the furious tokyo drift plus Tokyo Story, plus Akira. It was those three movies on top of each other. And you just kind of watch it, and you're just like, what is this? This is so cool.
2: There's this interesting thing, and I feel you have to keep this flame alive in you, where I think when you're younger, you take things and you're like, why can't I do this? Why can't I run this backwards? Or why not film... All my cutscenes of a video game and redub it, or you just try a whole bunch of stuff. And then as you get older and you learn the rules, oftentimes, it's not always, but oftentimes people then become more traditionalist or classicalist, and they then dig into trying to be good at the traditions or trying to be good at the classicalism or the structure or just trying to become part of this bigger thing that's existed for 3,000 years, which is great, and I get it. But I, I love the experimentation, and I love when people say, why can't I put all four of those movies together? And- and it becomes something different.
0: in the BC Boys stories, they kind of talk about that with MCA doing that with he created his own like l- tape looping set up in his own house by like i forget exactly what it was but he was like looping tape around like chairs in order to get something like so specific like a little tiny little sample that he could like cut
1: out i would say i never want to lose that i want to always remember always experiment i think to me something that was super important to like me as a young filmmaker and i think continues to be is star wars and specifically the fan the positive fan, community state that, the positive <laughs> fan community around sort of this idea of what can be made within the universe. And I think a lot about there was this project a few years ago. It was called Star Wars Uncut. And it was basically 10 to 30 second segments of A New Hope and you would claim one, and then you would make that, you'd make a short film of that scene in the movie in whatever capacity you wanted to stop motion. You could do, like, experimental filmmaking, you could do straight narrative filmmaking, and then someone recut the entire movie as this 1,500-piece fan-made redo of A New Hope, but with the shifting style every 15 to, to 30 seconds, basically. And it was sort of this interesting, like, this interesting walkthrough, like, what's something that's important to you that existence one way can become when you have just your imagination behind it and sort of this foundation to do it. I think Star Wars in particular is really interested in that because I think it speaks. People are so passionate about it and it is such a creative, heavy thing. You go to YouTube and watch short films of... And so many people feel they have ownership of it. Yeah, and it, it presents within that feeling of ownership, I think, because there's three distinct periods of Star Wars now, I think, within the, the releases of the films and people have very strong opinions about it, and they're very personal, so they get defensive or go on the attack in very personal ways, and I think it's kind of unique to there's definitely other big cultural things now. I think Marvel has, as the current, like, the godfather of, like, culture right now. It's a really interesting fandom because you have these very toxic people, but also these very, like, loving people who it's so important to, and why it's important to them ranges, and they're sort of beyond just the films themselves, it's this community that people make, where they meet people and they build this foundation to do their own things through it, but all channeled through this thing that exists. And I can't imagine that, I mean, clearly from a merchandising standpoint, he did imagine Star Wars being something substantial. But to make this thing that speaks to so many people and become so many people's personal project too, whether it's a fan film or just however. I mean, because because it especially because it invokes all mediums and books and comics and video games and now TV shows. Uh, I think it's kind of a unique thing and sort of this foundation of what something can become. Now Star Wars was taken very positively, so the reaction isn't so much changing how it's looked at, but that's happening too because you have the prequels, which came out when I was a teenager and were reviewed fairly negatively, but there's been this reappraisal the last few years especially with the younger generation I think Gen Z especially has reappraised it as like that's their Star Wars and now they're very like passionate about their Star Wars and it's become this big internet you know meme content and it's really interesting because it it makes you sort of look back and be like oh maybe they're actually pretty good because there's all these things you can look at so I think sort of the reappraisal cycle which we'll get into more is fascinating I think the community around Star Wars within that is, is also like wild. I heard Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live once tell
2: a story I thought was fascinating where he could tell when you graduated high school by who your favorite SNL cast was because he would say that those years, 17, 18, 19 where you're not really dating, you don't have any responsibilities but maybe not in full blossom with a car or whatever, yeah. Saturday night you're watching Saturday Night Live and I was like well no, the best cast is the Will Ferrell cast With, and then I was like wait, how old was I.
1: Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, he's right. I was 17, 18, 19. It is. There's something about the art you take in around that period. And before that, too, someone pointed out that there's like an age you hit where you kind of quit listening to new music and you get nostalgic. Never
2: stop listening to music. It's so interesting.
1: But it becomes like because of the way our brains work and the way that they develop, I guess there's this part where you are listening to the things that made you feel everything as a teenager when you're older, going back to those, whatever dopamine, whatever brain cells it's hitting is like the specific type of like internal pleasure that you are that you want. Yeah, and yeah. so you, you quit listening to stuff because you don't get that anymore. That's like work you have to put in to learn new things. But in the past, this sort of nostalgic era, which I think Connor and I's generation is hitting very hard right now with like the 90s. You look back to what used to make you happy, what fulfilled everything in hopes to recapture that. And so I think reappraisal of stuff happens in, the, in a similar regard.
2: Like, I've been watching a lot of the Lonely Island digital shorts, SNL did, which was After My Time by Lauren Michaels thing, and I think they're brilliant. And I look at a lot of Bill Hader's work, and Jason Sudeikis and stuff, and I'm, you know, I I think that's the whole thing about don't fall into the trap of thinking your thing was the only thing. Or the
1: best thing, I think. Or the best you get thing. very defensive, and you, conversations are conversations, they are arguments about.
2: And, and just a, I was actually, IAD'd one of those things you were talking about, RoboCop, they did a scene-by-scene, scene, and my first the Cadillac brothers, people should check it out. Did the Robocop scene where the Ed 9000 kills the like worker dude, and he's like, I'm very disappointed, dick. That scene, yeah. and they used they built a life size full scale Ed 2000 that was puppeted by a guy, and then it was puppets and humans. I remember watching that, and watching every scene was a different thing some more successful than others, but it was awesome.
0: One of those scenes was remade by Fatal Farm who's this comedy group, I think, online. I don't really know what their composition is exactly. They're like some sort of entity. They did the scene, I don't know if you remember this, but it's when the guy is assaulting the woman and Robocop
2: saves Oh yeah, that's the best scene in the movie. And my friends did a great scene, but the shoot me in the... In. yeah he shoots
0: this guy's penis off very bloody and then like a hundred different men all with their penises out just start running at him and he starts shooting them all off and they're just all exploding and it's so over the top but they also did something great called lasagna cat if you've never seen it's a garfield thing where they would make live action remakes of garfield comics and <laughs> then do like a music video afterwards to like a popular tune cheeseburger in paradise or uh, had like a whole or two i remember specifically
2: i'll have to what, what are they called fatal farm fatal
0: farm is the group lasagna cat is the garfield series and that series in particular is
3: pretty great gamera 2 attack of legion now hear me out back in my school days i grabbed gamera 2 at a believe it or not at a tech store called fries which some people (laughs) might have heard of yeah that's right i've been around and they're all gone now which i'm very sad because that was been that was my store to get movies but gamera 2 was one of them and I went on to the special features and I see this track called Lake Texarkana track and I played it they took out the English dub and the Japanese track and redubbed it with rednecks for voices instead like for instance they say holy crap multiple times and the only person that's not dubbed like redubbed was the female lead and then there's one scene in particular where uh, one of the dudes is going up to a room and her parents are, like, right there look at him. And like, oh, come on up. And you're like, hell yeah. And she goes upstairs. <laughs> I don't know who did it, but it's on the Arrow Blu-ray of it. I can't find any stories of how this got made because in my personal opinion, that's the funniest dub I've ever seen. And I highly recommend watching it. Also, um, Gamera farts when he takes off. Why does that always work? Why do
2: farts, like my son, if I'm at a loss with my son, he's going down a rabbit hole of melodrama, I'll just say that someone's tooting or I'll make a fart sound and it'll
1: just, my son will just come out of it and laugh and he'll be like, ha. <laughs> I've quit trying to understand it because you can try to talk yourself out it, that it's not funny or that it's childish. It's just like-
0: It's base level, but it's not so gross. That's a good point. There's like base level humor that's like just way too gross. Like poop is too gross. Vomit, too gross. A fart that just smells it's fine it's funny it's hilarious (laughs) we all do it i
1: think to speak to edwin's thing too there's like an entire having just worked with the resistance like you guys were talking about you know like mystery science theater 3000 you have movies like kung pao this entire thing is this taking things that are negatively received and then making them new again by adding this new level to it that's fascinating because it does work and it makes you love the original product because you have this great association with it now. I don't think it's really cool. It's stuff I would have never have seen. Like most of like Mystery Science Theater stuff, I wouldn't like seek out to watch. Yeah, but now, no, that's a great point. When yeah. I hear Manos, Hands of Fate, I'm like, oh my gosh, what a great experience that was. Did you ever hear the MST3K guys talking about why they eventually had to stop? Even
2: though now they're doing riff tracks, and it was only one guy it was Joel, who I don't think is part of it anymore. But Joel said that it got to the point where he was watching the movies, and he was like, "This is a really good movie." But it wasn't. It was an awful movie. And he said <laughs> that he had gone so down the rabbit hole that he had no more bearings on what was
1: yeah. good
3: or bad. And he was like, I got to stop doing this. Just watch Gamera fart as he takes off and uh, <laughs> and Redneck Muses playing while he fights another monster. It's just like insanely incredibly funny. And honestly, it's a straight out mass But just seeing Gamera just fart.
0: <laughs> I'm going to connect Gamera farting. To Dadaism. If people don't know what Dada is, it's an art movement, avant garde one in the early 20th century. And it's, I don't really know how, how to explain it really. An
2: illustrative example would be Marcel Duchamp, who was a very famous Dadaist, took a urinal and signed it. And then he just put it up in a museum. Now it seems passe. Now, like plenty of people have done that. But at the time, people came in and they were used to seeing paintings. The arguments then were arguments about if Van Gogh was a painter if you can believe it, like if Impressionism was painting, and then he just brought a urinal, signed it, put it up in a French museum in the 1920s, and people were like lighting things on fire and screaming, that was Dadaism, which is what is art? It was literally a confrontational, like, I dare you to tell me that's not art.
0: Different forms of this. There's the cut-up technique, kind of a collage technique where you take different types of words and you just mix them up and that create some sort of poem or piece of written art. Collage is kind of the broader idea In a lot of ways, the thing that I was talking about earlier that I did, that's kind of a collage sort of thing. The movie you've talked about, Daniel, Dawson City, Frozen Time, that's a collage film. Collage itself then extends technically into things like What's Up Tiger Lily and Kung Pao. Dadaism specifically, I think, is an incredible movement in that I think it totally breaks down the barrier between high art and low art. And so I'm always a fan of that sort of analysis. There's a lot of modern comedy stuff that's definitely, I think, rooted in Dadaism. I think Tim and Eric being the most popular example.
2: Eric Andre would probably be. That sort of
0: absurdity of everything. And you know what you could also call transformative art is you're talking about Mystery Science Theater 3000. I've mentioned Red Letter Media, where they're doing these reviews. You could almost extend that to us, that what we're doing is transformative art, and that we're taking film and analyzing it, creating something new, which we are.
2: I'll take that. I haven't seen too much Red Letter Media, but when Prometheus came out... Oh, this is unbelievable. But when I saw the Red Letter Media's Prometheus, I just kept watching it. And just laughing. People should check out Red Letter Media doing the review
1: of Ridley Scott's alien sequel, Prometheus. Or they're like feature-linked Star Wars prequels things.
0: My favorite is this is more of like a traditional show, but they're best of the worst in review stuff, best of the worst where they talk about bad movies. It's
1: perfect because it makes you wanna watch it. Like them discussing it with such like, yeah. Passion makes you like, you're like I want to watch this now. That's one of the
2: great things about everything we're talking about is a movie like everyone's saying that you might not have given a second thought or a second chance. Suddenly, you're psyched to see things and see them in a new way. You never would have like pulled it off the shelf or whatever.
0: I mean, specifically Ryan's Babe, which I saw earlier this year and rewatch, which is like a good bad movie. But I love that kind of stuff. And if it wasn't for Best of the Worst, I never would have known about that film. It's kind of incredible.
1: I think it's so interesting. What speaks to that is when something like that happens. It becomes a community thing. Like, it's rarely one person doing it. I think it brings together people to, like, have this universal experience together. This quote-unquote bad thing. They're like, actually, it's great under the right circumstances. And in a weird
2: way, reaffirming what cinema is, which I actually would say, and I know we're implicitly in what we do. That's the thesis of everything that Secret Movie Club does. But I think going to the theater is a communal experience. The disconnect that's happening right now is that streaming or watching, consuming cinema at home, it is an experience and a worthwhile and a valid experience. I watch tons of movies at midnight on my own, but it is not the same as cinema. And so I think that when you have these movies where you get together and laugh or do something, it is yet another way of saying, no, this is community. Cinema is communal. It's participatory, too. I think one day I want to do this here at the club. There was this work called The Clock that showed at the L.A. County Museum of Art about 10 years ago. And a guy literally spent years finding bits of film from around the world that happened at certain time periods. And he cut a 24-hour movie where if something happened at 3.20 a.m., that's the clip that you see. And then of course, no surprise, the the mini climaxes or the act breaks are at like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. Because in movies, mostly people don't have something happen at 3.20 a.m. It happens at 3 a.m. Or it would happen at 1.30 p.m. And I was there for 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. That's when I watched it. I watched two hours of it. And you go into a hypnotic like trance state because they try to create a narrative, but it's more like a dream narrative. That was amazing. I've never seen the all 20 four hours. I would like to. I'm fascinated by what Soderbergh has done. People should look at it. But Soderbergh seems to be this guy. I don't want to presume until I get to interview him or talk to him.
3: He seems very restless. I saw his initial cut of Heaven's Gay, and he redid the whole movie. He made it incredibly short. And honestly, I don't know where to like it or just be surprised that he took that really massive film and re-edited to like an hour and a half. It's incredible. Like you start off with Christopher Walken showing up and then the the college sequence is in the middle of the sequence. It's like a flashback basically. He He took that scene and basically turned into a flashback. The yacht scene is probably still the same or it got extended but it's very different from the longer cut of the film. It's still up. It's on a website. I think it's on his website. Just put in Steven Soderbergh's Heaven's Gate and you can see the full length film. It's incredibly strange.
2: And so Edwin, I I couldn't have done it better. Edwin's seen one of these, and what I wanted to talk about is Soderbergh seems to be one of these cats that he will get disenchanted with movies or he'll get disenchanted with what I can't figure out what it is in his personality and he'll have to rediscover a love of them and that happened he did Schizopolis which is a fascinating movie and he yeah it's not one of his best but he felt he was getting too formal and then he watched Richard Lester Beatles movies and The Knack and How to Get It and How I Lost the War and he was like I'm going to make a crazy new wave movie and he did Schizopolis and that became Ocean's Eleven and Ocean and that new style he had then he got disenchanted again and did the Nick and he, you remember he was like, "I'm going to retire from movies, or I don't know if I can make movies anymore." And then he came back with Logan Lucky, which is like his third phase, and now he's doing the iPhone movies and the the wide angle movie that just dropped on HBO Max. And what Edwin said, and I've been fascinated by this, is he'll just take movies and re-edit them, and it's for him to, I guess interact with the movie, or think about it, or think about editing. Now, it's funny what Edwin said. I really want to see his cut of Heaven's Gate, because Heaven's Gate's a movie that I admire, but I do feel it's overlong. And I know, Edwin, you'll take me to task on that. I also feel that the college sequence at the beginning of Heaven's Gate, he's just redoing what he was doing in Deer Hunter, where he wanted an hour-long sequence that then hard cuts to the main story. I think doing it as a flashback in the middle of the movie is formally and stylistically more original, than what he did in the original cut, which just felt like he was doing Deer Hunter again. And the last thing I'll say is we're gonna show AI, and AI is a movie, the more I think about it, the more I really, really like a lot of it, although I've always felt that the ending is very problematic. I just think Kubrick would've done it differently. I've heard some people say, no, 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 watch the ending of AI and just relieve yourself of your preconceptions. And it works. I've never felt that the ending has worked personally. I feel it's very ambitious and I don't want to get into it. People should see it, but I've never felt that it worked. Other people say you're wrong and we'll see, we're going to reshow it. But I love the first two thirds of AI. And I always wanted AI to end with Haley Joel Osment at the bottom of the ocean, looking at the blue fairy and dying <laughs> with the teddy bear. And Soderbergh made a cut of AI where that's where it ends. I think he also took out the flesh fair, and he may have taken out the Einstein part. But I'm very curious to see how that works, because I feel that AI is like a masterpiece with an ending that's problematic.
3: Kubrick kind of directed, well, did a little voice recording for AI. And that's Robin Williams part only. He recorded the Robin Williams stuff first, which he plays Einstein. And that's the only thing he's done for AI, which is in the film. And I guess Spielberg just finished the rest.
1: For a second, I was blending AI and Bicentennial Man, and I was like, Robin Williams is in that? I mean, beyond just like things becoming new things, what about movies that have been like reappraised, whether positively or negatively, and sort of have this new, there's this new public perspective on them? Because I think you have stuff like pretty much anything Verhoeven's done, you know, Starship Troopers came out, it did fine, but was like, people seem to have miss, I mean, obviously some people did, but... It's like this scathing satire. I mean, a lot of his stuff is scathing satire, but people didn't get it. They thought it was like this weird... You like John Carpenter. Yeah, like The Thing, wasn't The Thing, didn't it do really poorly when it came out? Because it was
2: overshadowed by E.T., yeah. Everything that summer was like, except for Poltergeist. The critical reappraisal is
1: really interesting because I know that, you know, our tastes change and culture changes, and so we we look at art a certain way, which I think is the best part because we get to like have stuff renewed for us that we didn't like before or that we loved and now we're like, oh, I don't know.
0: A lot of times movies that end up being some of my favorite movies or movies that the first time I see them I'm like what is this like I just like don't know what to think of it and then it just takes me a couple of times watching it and a couple of years to like kind of catch up with what the movie is doing the best example is like literally the Evil Dead movies were like that the first time I watched those early on in high school I was like I don't know what this is like I was like (laughs) but something about it it like hit a little like Nerve in my brain, and I just had to keep coming back to it, and eventually I caught up.
2: That's like a fascinating way of interacting with pictures as well. *Richard Lebowski*, I think that's a key one. *Lebowski* to me is a bit of a miracle, and I don't even think the Cohen brothers, as far as I understand, because I've heard anecdotal stories that even yeah, C- said they don't understand why. Ethan Cohen is really weirded out by it. He's really weirded out when people come up to him because he feels it's become a religion or something, and he doesn't know what they did. It is a religion. I know it is. I think that Lebowski's a miracle in that I think it's all there. I think the Cohens intended everything. I think they were operating at the height of their powers, but it's this thing where what they were communicating, which is, I feel personally, like the dude abides, which is... People rise above their personal philosophies and ethoses to have friendships. So a Vietnam vet and a hippie are bowling partners, even though you would think that they would be arguing all the time, and they do argue all the time, they're constantly transcending their personal belief systems for their shared friendship. And you see that with like Jesus and his parole cop opposite, <laughs> like they're on a bowling team. And you see that with like the nihilists and the porn operators. You see it with the Republican who's married to a porn. It's like all these binaries. I dare someone. Is there a line or a scene or a beat or a moment you would cut out of that movie? No. Not only that, every time I see it, I see something new. I don't know how that movie does that. I do not know. And I think I've told this story, but it took me 20 times. And I've seen the movie about 30 times. I watch it once or twice a year. Before I realized that my theory is, you know, David Thewlis, the video artist, Knox Harrington, and he's laughing and Jeff Bridges is like, what is your problem, man? It's because I think Knox Harrington knows that Maude is going to have the dude's child and the dude doesn't know. And so he knows the whole plan and the dude doesn't know. And it took me 20 times to realize that.
1: It's part of that pantheon of stuff that is a rarity where, like, the first time I saw it as a teen, I didn't get it. I was like, why is this... Why Why are, why are people are going crazy yeah. about it? And I would watch it again because I did not like it. I just didn't get it. And the second time it like starts to click and the third time you're like, like oh, I'm looking, really looking forward to this. Looking forward to this part. But then there's a different part that stands out. And then just the further and further. And I feel like making something like that has to be an accident. That's maybe why they're so confused about it, because you can't plan to make that.
2: I have this corollary theory, and I don't know that it's true, but I think they were having a lot of fun. You know, George Clooney said one of the greatest things about having a lot of fun. That's not necessarily a recipe for great movie making, because George Clooney said if it was, Cannonball 2 would be the greatest movie ever made.
3: <laughs> and hey, he's don't, right, don't, don't ever. judge <laughs> Cannonball Ron 2, man. Leave that movie alone. Stop destroying my childhood, Craig. No,
2: I like Cannonball Run, too. I watched that on HBO like 10 times. But I think the point is that when you're at the height of your powers and you're loose, I think you're doing things you're not even aware of, which is why I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off is John Hughes' greatest movie. Because weirdly, I don't think John Hughes is trying to land the plane with drama in that. I think he's just having this great time. Yeah. And yet the movie with Cameron is still profoundly emotional, but he's not self-conscious about it. And I wouldn't change a thing about Ferris Bueller's. You know, Raiders, the Lost Ark. I think Spielberg is operating at the height of his powers, but he, he doesn't think he's making an important film. And weirdly, he ends up making it look... Well, anyway, I'll show up. Pop culture and final thoughts, Connor. Hey. It's you, baby. Shut
0: up, T-Thing. The other, only other thing I actually had written down, and is a good for a final thought, because it has more to do with music, but I kind of touched upon Beastie Boys sampling remix culture. I'm wearing a shirt for this game called Drop Mix. If anyone has never heard of it, it's this really cool game with cards where you like the cards have different parts of different music tracks, like licensed music tracks, like bass, drums, and you put them down and it mixes them together like a DJ. And you can play, kind of do it just free form and like make up weird songs. And there's also like a competitive way to play it. It's really cool. It was made by the people who made like the original Guitar Hero and Rock Band. You can get like the bass set for like 40 bucks on Amazon. I was also going to mention that the second episode of What If, the Marvel show, was very good. And specifically, rest in Peace, once again, to Chadwick Boseman, who I think it was his final performance as anything. He... Had recorded it before passing away last year. Uh, one last performance as T'Challa. I had a
2: friend. He's been on this podcast, Kevin Johnson. He was on the Spike Lee podcast because he's so he's like you, Connor. He's Marvel for life. And he Facebooked something a few days ago where he said some episode made him cry. There's
0: this show, What If, uh, which is like an animated show, which sort of takes something from the movies and like changes them. And so in this one, it's What If T'Challa became Star-Lord so what if him as a kid was the one who was abducted by Michael Rooker's character from the Guardians movie and it kind of goes into that mythos but with him at the front of it as opposed to Chris Pratt's Peter Quill and it's just a really good half-hour animated show and a good like uh, some minor spoilers but like you find this out a third of the way through but Thanos is like a good guy on his team and T'Challa was able to just talk to him out of being a genocidal <laughs> maniac. And so so much of the episode is about how good of a person T'Challa is and how much of a leader he was and how much he was able to connect with other people, which feels very representative of Chadwick Boseman from everything we know about him. Uh, rest in peace one more time.
3: Well, you know, I was just uh, watching movies uh, last night. I was at the Bev going again tonight for a Kung Fu double feature. I saw Jaws. Wow, what a was any, was any good? Uh, Daniel, you can, uh, you can go right to hell where you came from. Uh, you know? I do a
1: great. I've been tr- I've been trying to lock down a Richard Dreyfus impression, with Edwin's help, and it's going pretty well. Can we get a little taste? Oh, it's me, Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> he sounds Cockney. That's what Edwin's been kind of leading. me. He's been directing
3: me. Well, anyway, Jaws Jaws is incredible. You know, this one scene I didn't notice before, after like the second viewing on thirty five, is when 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 Richard Dreyfus comes into his house. And Roy Scheider is basically drunk. Uh, Richard Dreyfus is like, is uh, he says, "Is anyone eating this?" And I see the expression on their face, like, "That's my food. Why are you eating my food?" I feel like that was not intentional. He just did it. Yeah, it looks like an
1: improv bit. I love that moment. Yeah,
3: that was a little good improv. And that monologue scene, man, that monologue scene, it's incredible. With Robert Shaw, probably one of the best scenes in the whole film. Black eyes. Exactly, man. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and talking about, like, you know, art evolving, the Master of Disguise wouldn't exist unless it got to replicate that scene. So really, bless up, Jaws. I'm
0: going to cut in, real quick and say, you can watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruise. It feels more appropriate to do it now than after eulogizing somebody.
1: So Fair enough. In terms of stuff that I think will be perceived right now, and then hopefully in 10 years we'll have a really different opinion, is the new Annette. Mm, yeah. Man, what a divisive film. Which is, I think, fascinating. I, I kind of love when movies are like that because I think people who hate it rightfully so people who love it rightfully so and the conversations are interesting I was on the, the positive end I think it's wild and then I also watched The Mitchells versus The Machines which is this How Netflix was So good I think it came out a few months ago but it is Sony Animation I think is doing it and they are Done on by roll. the part of the Spider-Verse Tim. You know it's people trying to understand internet humor which evolves every six months. And they, they kind of get it. It's like definitely cringy at certain points, but it knows it too. I, I thought it was fantastic. And then I also, for the first time, watched Night Moves. Oh, what do you think of that? Did Gene Hackman, Arthur? I loved love? it. It was just on the Criterion channel. And I was like, oh, this looks like a good time. I'll do that today. And was very taken by it. Love some Hackman. Man, it's just good it exists. Talk about a miracle. Still with us. And he has the audacity to post a photo of him at ninety-one.
2: He's still biking around Santa Fe. He takes a photo where he's like, hey, still here. He talks about Richard Donner, R. I. P. for and then you're like, and you won't even you won't even do a scene? You won't even give us a little taste. He's just writing crime books. It it rules. Oh, Hackman. I hope he listens to our podcast at Santa Fe. I would love that. And he hears this. Hello. Yeah, hey,
0: Gene. We will come to your house to record a podcast and record it in your yeah. living room. We don't
2: even need to come to your house, man. Just get your grandkids to hook you up. So I'm watching, not to be cryptic, but I'm watching a bunch of movies that I can't talk about right now for a very specific, I know, Edwin, for a very specific reason. It, it's both, I hope, exciting and not as exciting as you would think. But I watched a movie that I finished last night, and it had this amazing cinematography, and I can't even get into who did it because it would tip the hat too much of what I'm doing, and I'm not going to do that, but I will say this. It's not a movie that's well-known in the States. It's not something that gets talked about a lot. It should be, and it was just making me aware that it's obvious there is all this cinema, could be here, could be around the world, that you just might not know about, but it could be the cinema that influences your next script, or influences your style, or changes you, or inspires you. And going along with what we were all saying today, I would highly recommend that people try to the best of their ability not to just fall into comfort food watching and saying, okay, these are the 50 movies that inspired me, and I'm just going to recycle those. To the best of your ability, if you can just get out and say, hey, I'm going to see Annette. Hey, this person mentioned this crazy Turkish film, or they mentioned this African film. You know, I've never seen us many, Samembe. I'm going to watch that, or whatever. Do that. Always do that. Because I was watching this for a specific reason. And I was seeing these sequences. I can't even tell you what it was about because it would tip the hat. I can say this. It was an amazing sequence at night with probably a thousand extras and candles and flames. And how this cinematographer did this at the time that this film stock was there, I have no idea other than it's obvious he was a genius cinematographer. And I was just watching the angles and watching the shooting and watching the sequence. And I was like... I'll straight up lift that sequence one day, you know, as inspiration. And had I not been watching this movie, I would have never known about it. So I will tell everybody what that sequence is when I get through this whole thing and I can officially announce what it is. But anyway, that's my cryptic whatever. Thank you to everybody. As always, you can find out about everything we do on secretmovieclub.com. Go to Eventbrite to get tickets. Pretty much this week we'll announce all of our September. Come watch the last week of August. By the time you hear this, the Raid 1 and 2 will probably be sold out, but maybe not Friday night. We're we're doing a Chaplin triple at the Million Dollar Theater on Saturday, and then we're doing our Jim Jarmish double of Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law, two great mid-'80s Jarmish here at the club Saturday night. You can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. There it is Secret Movie Club Podcast 70 Thank you to all of you guys It's wonderful to be Doing all this stuff As always These episodes are edited By our chief creative Content officer Connor Lloyd-Cruz And next week Secret Movie Club Podcast 71 Will be about Stranger Than Paradise The movie that launched Jim Jarmusch And Jim Jarmusch And Jarmusch was part Of an 80s wave That included Spike Lee And the Cohen brothers Really all actually Graduates of NYU Interestingly Then John Sayles Who is not NYU And a few others So we'll talk about Jim Jarmish for the first time next week. Yeah.
1: Have a great week, homies. See ya. Goodbye, citizens.
3: Oh, thank God.